This book has its beginnings in the many awkward conversations we shared with friends and relatives while showing them around our first curatorial endeavours. To friends and family outside the art world, being a curator seemed to boil down to deciding on the cleverest way to hang paintings in a room. They were all baffled, alienated and more than a little amused by it all. That was Jessica Tarasi, a London-based curator, writer, and former exhibitions manager at Carol Fletcher, and Kyung An, assistant curator at the Guggenheim, reading from the introduction of their new book, Who's Afraid of Contemporary Art? I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, and on this episode of the Artsy Podcast, Kyung and Jessica are going to walk us through the ABCs of contemporary art, quite literally, because they've divided up their book into 26 questions addressing uh, the thorny and sometimes alienating topic that is contemporary art, with each kind of question assigned to a letter of the alphabet. So I highly recommend reading all 26 questions, but for the sake of time, we've narrowed it down to just five. Um, Just a warning before we dive in too deep, this episode contains some cursing because of the subject matter of an artist's work. So I think a good place to begin is, C, what is contemporary art? Well, that's a very big question. Um, I think the thing with contemporary art is that it's such a broad definition. Uh, really, anything being made today from paintings to performance, sculpture, even you know websites can be considered contemporary art. And really, for us at least, it's, it's a definition that stretches back to works being made in the 1960s when there's a generally accepted break point that uh, in that period there were so many different movements happening at once, uh, so many developments being made in the art world that you couldn't really locate the avant-garde in one place at one time. And really the fact is it's a very broad term that um, in some ways is deliberately broad to encompass the wealth of contemporary art being made today. And one of the most kind of interesting characteristics of contemporary art as opposed to other art forms we might think of historically is the fact that, you know, how it's being produced, how we talk about it, the way it's received, and then, you know, imitated, regurgitated, thought of, um, all of that is happening at the same time, which makes contemporary art very kind of a self-aware type of art form. It's a very self-conscious art form. And in that sense, it really allows for plurality of voices to chime in and allow it to tell a different story. Right. It's not confined to any one kind of formal or even social dynamic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a multiplicity there. Sorry. Right, exactly. That's just the thing. I, I think often we're asked what is contemporary art and people are really looking for an easy answer there and us to be able to define it in a sentence and and that's just not possible. But I think, at least for us, what we find really interesting about contemporary art is the way that it's engaging with contemporary culture and the way that it takes on contemporary issues, you know, things that are really pressing to our times. In 50 years, will the artwork that's being made in 2017 still be called contemporary? Like, will they look back and call it contemporary art? Or or is there sort of the expectations that what is considered contemporary today will eventually be sorted by, you know, the sorting hat into different <laughs> uh, movements that we just can't see because we're too close to it right now? I think only time can tell. The way we look at 
you know, art produced in the 1960s, we still consider that as contemporary art, but sometimes we call it historical contemporary art, right? So new terms are being invented all the time because we are trying to get to grips with what's happening. And because the history of it is being written as it is being produced, it's very hard to categorize it as contemporary art and predict what we'll call it in 20 years time. So we'll just have to to wait and see. Um, all right. I think that's a good place to leave it. Next up is E, Emperor's New Clothes, What Makes It Art? We've all encountered works of art these days and kind of just scratched our heads. But but you 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 sort of say the question of is it art isn't really the one we should be asking. It's a question we get asked a lot. And I'm going to be completely honest here and say that it's a question that I find painfully boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I probably speak for a lot of people in the art world when I say that. Frankly, it is a very good question. It's the most important question, but it's a, a question that we are unable to answer. <laughs> um, asking what makes it art, in essence, you're asking what is art, right? And that's a big question. It's like saying, what is life? And, you know, opinions differ. Everyone has their own opinions and you can't settle on a right answer. The answer changes all the time. And so, you know, what makes it art? That is kind of not the question that you should be asking. You should, I'm going to be a bit corny here and say, take a leap of faith and accept that this is art. If it is art, then what does that do for you? Mm -hmm. The right question you should be asking is, okay, if this is art, what does that mean to me? Right. And it, asking, you know, is it art can often actually be profoundly lazy while at the same time trying to seem quite profound mm -hmm. right. because you're, you're not actually engaging with the work as you're sort of saying on its own terms. You're just sort of being trying to just dismiss it without thinking too hard. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially it moves the con conversation away from the artwork and it becomes a question of philosophy. And then you can have these conversations time and time again, but they end up being the same conversations no matter what you're looking at. Um, and so what we were trying to do is is really encourage people to look at the object. And in order to do that, you might need to shelve that conversation for a moment um, and ask some different questions. Yeah, one thing I really like that you both do in the book is there's uh, an example of like a work of art that sort of fits in with, with the broader uh, letter or question that you're discussing. And this one is uh, Piero Menzoni's artist shit from 1961. <laughs> Can you maybe talk a little bit about that piece? Um, that was really fun to write. Um, so, so that work is a can of the artist shit. There we go. Is it art? <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you have to believe. I believe. You have to believe. I believe it. And well, he sold that um, can of his own shit um, at the price of gold in 1961. It's a great idea. I mean, it's a really funny, <laughs> irreverent idea. And those are still sold, uh, you know, those could come up for auction tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah, and they, they, they garner much more than the price of gold um, w would be for them today. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, it's a work from 1961 and it continues to provoke and it continues to cause indignation. Um, and, and that's what I think is, is really powerful about it. He's, he's really making a riff on the art world with that work. You are really going on the artist's word that what is in the can is actually within the can. And if you were to open it and check, well, then the thing loses its value completely. And so so it's really a commentary on, on 
branding within the art world and how art is marketed and how it can be pitched um, as a consumer product and the aura surrounding a work of art. Yeah, thinking about what's inside that can uh, brings us to our next topic, mm-hmm. perhaps a little bit queasily. TLC, Tender Loving Conservation. How can we make sure our art survives? It's a great question in the time of new media and the digitization of art. So, Kyung, how, how can we make sure our art survives? Conservation is actually one of my favorite topics. Even though I'm a curator, we work very closely with conservators at the museum, um, at the Guggenheim Museum where I work. And um, conservation teams are really responsible for understanding the original intention of the artist and then uh, trying to understand how we can show this work, say, in a 100 years time in a different space if the artist is no longer with us. What is the actual artwork that we're trying to show? And that's very easy for, say, a painting. You know, you know how big it is. You know um, that it was painted with oil on wood. You know how to preserve that. But when it comes to contemporary art, you know, it's very, very difficult. Video art, yes, there's the issue of migration. As technology changes, how do we um, show what was playing on a videotape to a CD, um, ROM, to a, um, a MP3 player, right? To um, installation art, things with living organisms. How do you preserve that? So all those things take a lot of um, interviews and conversations with artists to discern what the original intention of the artist is. And then we try to do that. Yeah, I mean, you have a lovely little anecdote in the book about a conservator calling the manufacturers of, I think it's Warhol soup cans, yeah. to make sure, to, to see what the adhesive was uh, for the original can so that they can get that all the way down to, to the tiniest detail perfectly accurate. But obviously then you have something, like you were sort of saying, uh, work on film, where maybe the artist thought that the clicking of the slides was a significant part of the work. Well, what do you do when they stop manufacturing mm-hmm. those slides because no one uses them anymore? Uh, but one thing that's interesting is what about when artists intentionally want their work to become obsolete? How do, how do you sort of grapple with that? I think it's a question of locating what part of the art is the art. And um, that's something that conservators spend a lot of time over, uh, particularly today. Uh, we're lucky that most contemporary artists are living. So uh, the conservators will interview them directly and, and try and garner this all this information as soon as a work enters their collection. If the integral part of the work is the fact that it decays, then that is something that needs to be maintained. And maybe part of the consideration is that it needs to be replaced every so often so you watch the process of decay there there are many things that can be done but it's it's really um down to the conservator to work out the most ingenious solutions <laughs> in these cases and and it's it's really such a a varied role of a detective almost of not only a detective but a problem solver um uh, and an art historian uh to be able to to work in conservation and address these questions It's a quite theoretical question too, because yes, okay, when we're talking about works that might, you know, decay, fine, you do need um, the conservator to act like a detective and figure out the most um, scientific way to preserve that work of art for the future. But say you're looking at a performance, 
is the actual performance that took place at that particular time in that location? Is that the artwork or is the photo documentation of the, vi uh, the performance the actual artwork or is it the video documentation of it? How do we actually represent that work in the best way possible? And then that can only happen if you talk to the artist and you actually have to go back to what the artist was intending. And the unfortunate thing is artists change their minds all the time. So you do have to keep that in mind. So institutions obviously have teams dedicated to preserving art, but what happens when a piece is sold privately? What are the obligations on the collector to maintain a work? I used to work un until very recently in a commercial gallery and uh, we sold a number of arts working with new technology. Upon occasion, we would sell works that were websites. And when we would sell a website, part of the conditions of the sale was that the collector would take on the responsibility for maintaining the domain. And should the collector, for one reason or another, stop paying for the domain name that, and cause the work to go offline, within a certain time period, the work would pass back into the hands of the artist. So that's one way of ensuring that even though a work is sold to a private collector, it passes into private hands, it will be maintained and continue on for posterity and open access to the general public. On to P, which is for Picasso Baby. Why does everyone want in on art? I guess a good place to begin is explaining where this Picasso Baby uh, comes from. It's from a Jay-Z song. So yes, Picasso Baby is the name of a song by Jay-Z, which he also performed at Pace Gallery in 2013. And this was a four-hour durational performance where select members of the general public, along with actors and artists, including Marina Abramovich, uh, were, and critics like Jerry Seltz were all invited to attend. And one by one, uh, Jay-Z would perform to them directly in the style of Marina Abramovich's uh, artist, The Artist is Present performance that she had done three years earlier at MoMA. And uh, so, yes, the song is all about uh, having a Picasso in Mikasa uh, um, <laughs> and how Jay-Z wants to be the next uh, Picasso baby. It sort of divided opinion in the art world. Between people who sort of thought it was too hyper-commercializing or celebrating sort of the wealth aspect? I mean, what was the, what was the split? I think in the art world, uh, there were some concerns because it felt that Jay-Z, who is already famous and already a highly accomplished person in his field, was crossing over and claiming something that really had to be earned. I mean, fundamentally... Although Marina Abramovich clearly supported this work, in terms of the model adopted, it was not significantly different to her work. It was clearly derived from the work she had produced. And it was Jay-Z singing a song over and over. This also formed the basis of his music video for that song, which is not a music video, it's a performance art film. And in an art world where we prize originality so highly and authenticity where artists really struggle to gain attention. For an artist to cross over who already possessed such a fan base and to receive such renown for an artwork that perhaps wouldn't have gained the same attention if it had been done by anyone else and certainly wouldn't have had four hours at Pace Gallery, it, it did sort of get some backs up. But then at the same time, it was clearly a, a really exhilarating, fun event. People really got into it. I mean, 
you know, it's hard to fault something which had that degree of energy. And, you know, we all love Jay-Z, so... <laughs> Maybe his earlier stuff. Yeah, I, I, I do. Blueprint. You know. Anyway, we can talk about this for a different podcast, a different, you know, a different publication. Yeah, Fader. Jay-Z is hardly alone in setting foot in the art world but for publicity or for attention or for genuine artistic engagement, depending on your perspective. Uh, why do you think artists like Kanye have also set foot here in, in the art world? Like what is sort of drawing people to this? I think to position a a piece of music or a, a, a music video or you know a, an album or a concert as as a work of art somehow elevates it beyond popular culture and and puts it in the territory of a sort of higher genius and I think you know the space of art is seen as this this space of freedom where there aren't uh, parameters that can define success in the same way as a song um i mean you know that's I, i'm saying that very loosely but you know you can look if an album was successful by looking at the record sales whereas it, it, if it's defined as an art object well really you know you can't critique that it, 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 either you buy into it as as art or you don't and sort of to your point i just we can't leave this section without reading this quote um Kanye West was giving an interview and he said, I would trade all my Grammys or maybe two Grammys to be able to be in an art context. So I guess you can put a value judgment on it. It's two Grammys. <laughs> That's the number. Apparently so. <laughs> but it's also interesting to think about uh, art as kind of this space of higher genius because sometimes that can be incredibly alienating, including the language that goes along with it. So you have a great section that sort of addresses this WTF. Uh, what on earth am I looking at? And in that section, you address this now infamous topic, international art English. What is that? Well, we wanted to devote a section to art speak because we feel that this is really one of the reasons that contemporary art gets uh, such a bad reputation in some ways, because often, you know, you'll see an object, you'll have a WTF moment where you just think, what on earth is this? Somebody explain it to me. And then you'll go to the wall text or you'll read the press release and feel even more confused than when you began. There is a lot of convoluted writing in the art world. And part of that reason is that there's a technical language of contemporary art. Often, you know, curatorial texts are using specific terminologies and a, and a curatorial voice that is engaging within within the the art community that is very well versed in art theory. The problem is that, that that then trickles down to general exhibition literature that someone encountering a work for the first time then then reads, and no one can be expected to be able to uh, come straight in and and engage with all of this sort of high level theory and concept right away. Uh, I think we need to get better in the art world at understanding that there are different voices for contemporary art um, and different audiences and that these d different audiences need to be approached in a way that suits them. So what does someone visiting an exhibition for the first time need to know rather than what is my curatorial concept and, and what do I want to convey to my peers? Right, and it's really about the responsibility of the art world right it's our responsibility to try to speak to as many different audiences as possible 
you know, as a curator, I'm talking to eight-year-old girls as well as security guards explaining the work so that they can explain it to the visitors who are foreigners who don't understand English. Um, to family members, I mean, I'll never forget my sister and her husband, who is a physicist, were in Bilbao. And they saw a Jeff Koons exhibition. And my sister just sent a picture of the wall label that had the word meta-narrative. And she was like, what the hell is this? I don't understand. You guys need to do a better job. And then my brother-in-law chimed in and said, you know what? In physics, we use the word meta. And it means, you know, this monolithic thing. And so I think I understand what, what she's saying. And I think that's that I love that example because it shows that you can draw from your own experiences from your own pool of knowledge however specialized that might be and then use it to understand that art speak mm. we'll have a podcast on this podcast to explain meta narrative <laughs> um, <laughs> meta I'll write there. a book <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I, I also really like in this book is when you sort of you you really do a good job inhabiting the f- like the feet or the, in the mind of the viewer. So you talk about how people, when they don't understand or necessarily understand a work of art right away, they shouldn't take it personally. Because a lot of the time, I think that's what causes people to have such negative reactions to contemporary art and write off all art all at once because they saw one work that was maybe terrible or maybe they just weren't able to parse it. How do you sort of think about that relationship? I think something we really wanted to get across to people is that when you have these responses to an artwork, it's not just you. We feel that way all the time. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't anticipate that I'll ever get to a point where I just walk into an art gallery and I'm like, oh, yes, I know exactly what this is. What we found is that there can often be a disconnect between what the art world says you should experience when you look at an artwork and what, in fact, you do experience when you first encounter an artwork. And what we're really looking to do is help you find ways to narrow that gap. And what are some of those ways? I mean, how would you how do you recommend sort of maybe approaching a piece on a practical level? You can always refer to the wonderful labels that we write (laughs) (laughs) and ask the very friendly guides um, or the gallery assistants in in commercial galleries. And they are there to help, you know, and to help you understand the work because the artist didn't make it didn't plonk it in the museum space so that you know you're all baffled and then you walk away angry they want you to understand they want you to engage so that you have to accept that there is that desire there and that it's a welcoming space um but often i think um the easiest way is to draw from your own experiences and um think about the look at the artwork you know what is it made of why did they use this material when was it made what was significant during that year what were the issues most urgent political social issues at the time did the artist experience a um, a difficult episode in his or her personal life these are questions um, that you should be asking because they will help you unlock that um, you know door and understand that work a little bit better. I think one of the things is that often we can be afraid to ask questions. I mean, that's why the the book is called Who's Afraid of Contemporary Art? Just purely because we realize there are so many fears around it. And I, I think, you know, part of those fears come from being nervous around sounding silly. But actually having worked with so many different artists over the years, 
what they're really looking to do is provoke these questions. They really want to stimulate uh, you to think in a different way. So I guess if there's one takeaway from this book is is just to to not feel nervous around engaging with art and to feel entitled to question it. Thanks to our guests, Jessica and Kyung, whose book, Who's Afraid of Contemporary Art, is available now. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free.